This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode four of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is American show jumper and jockey Kathy Kusner. Kathy Halliwell Kusner was born on March 21, 1940, in Gainesville, Florida. She excelled as an international show jumper, jockey, pilot, scuba diver, and marathon runner, and is the founder of Horses in the Hood. Kathy's show career began in 1989, and while only 21 years old, she was named American Horse Shows Association's Horsewoman of the Year before joining the United States Equestrian Team in 1961. As one of the first women ever selected to represent the USET in Olympic competition, she rode in the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo and the 1968 Games in Mexico City. Kathy played an integral part in the USET's Tim Silver Medal victory in 1972 at Munich. She also won a team gold medal at the 1963 Pan American Games in Sao Paulo and a team silver medal at the 1967 Pan American Games in Winnipeg. Kathy was a two-time winner of the Leading International Rider Award at the National Horse Show and in 1967 was crowned the Ladies' European Champion. In 1968, she became the first licensed woman jockey in the United States and led the way for women to ride races throughout the world. She was also the first woman to ride in the Maryland Hunt Cup, the world's toughest timber race. Kathy volunteers her time working with inner-city children in the Los Angeles area with her program Horses in the Hood, which introduces young people to horses. She is a skilled pilot with commercial, multi-engine, instrument and seaplane ratings and aerobatic skills. Kathy became the first woman to work as a Learjet pilot for Executive Jet Aviation, the largest jet charter company in the world. As an experienced scuba diver, she has traveled the world in underwater exploration. Kathy has won numerous track and field events and road races, including her division at the Colorado Pikes Peak Ultramarathon three times. She has also won her division in almost every 10,000-meter road race in the Los Angeles area. In 1990, Kathy was inducted into the Show Jumping Hall of Fame. In 2000, she was named one of the 50 most influential horsemen of the 20th century by the Chronicle of the Horse and the American Horse Shows Association. She was also inducted into the Virginia Horse Shows Association Hall of Fame. In 2005, she received the Pegasus Medal of Honor from the United States Equestrian Federation and was inducted into the World Sports Humanitarian Hall of Fame. Kathy, welcome and thank you for joining me. Well, Chris, thank you very much for asking me. You have been a true inspiration with such a full and active life, and not just on the back of a horse, of course. As I said in my introduction, you've done so many things. But I should disclose, Cassie, that you have a special place in my heart. Back in the mid-60s in England, when I was working with Peter Robeson, of course, you know so well. And mm -hmm. you were part of the American team and would stay in the American barn at Hickstead. And I used to follow your 
career with interest. I was a big fan of yours. So it's a delight to have you on the show, having watched your career over the years. So it is a personal privilege to have you on the show. Well, I feel honored, Chris, and thank you very much. Well, I'd like to begin, Kathy, as I said in my introduction, you have done so many things in your life and your record as a horsewoman is second to none. But I'd like to take take us back, if I may, Kathy, with the early years of as a child where you grew up and how horses became a part of your life. I think I forced it because I was always crazy for horses, but they weren't around my life. And before I got a chance to really be with them at all, I would take off exploring uh, on the weekends, going as far as I could to see as much as I could, just a little kid running through the neighborhoods. And I found a pony that was for sale for $150 and so begged my parents if they would buy the pony that I would support him because I knew I could do that. I had worked in pony rings uh, where you just lead the pony around with the little kid on the pony. And I knew I could lead my pony up and down the streets and call out pony rides and get some activity that way, so to speak, for 25 cents to the end of two blocks or 10 cents to the end of one block to support him. And so they did it. They bought the pony, and I supported the pony very happily, just couldn't believe my lucky stars that I had a pony and did everything with him all day, all every free hour when I wasn't in school and before school, after school, everything. Yeah. So that was the beginning. And then the next thing was I found out that there was such a thing as horse shows and I went and I saw people doing things that I sure did not know how to do, like ride with a saddle. I always rode the pony bareback and jumping courses. And so I asked at the horse show if somebody could tell me where I could learn how to do these things. And they introduced me to a a woman, Jane Dillon, who had a riding school. And so then the next thing was to get myself organized at the riding school and to take lessons and I would do stable duty on the weekends at the riding school and I would get to take lessons and then I got to show some of the school horses in their local shows and then a little bit at shows that were not just at the riding school and then horse dealers started to ask me if I would ride some horses for them and I was thrilled of my mind uh, to have such an opportunity. I mean, this felt like I was really becoming a professional, which was great. And uh, so I rode for horse dealers, and as time went on, I got to ride for better horse dealers, and also private people and other stables started asking me to ride for them, too. And again, this was the whole goal, was to get to ride better horses, become a better rider, so I would be asked to ride better horses. And one thing led to more The next thing, as I got to ride better horses, I got to be a better rider, and I ended up riding for the best dealer in the country and riding a horse that was the best jumper in the country, a horse called Windsor Castle. And so this is a slow evolution in a sense, but that's how the evolution did go, basically. From that, I was invited to ride at the team 
the United States Equestrian Team trials in uh, 1958. I did that, and from that I was asked to train with the team in the winter of 59 and the winter of 60, and I did that. And so that's kind of how it began. Also, another thing that was happening was in the very beginning, I was grooming at horse shows and braiding at horse shows quite a bit when I wasn't so lucky to get to ride at that moment. So that was all a very interesting and good thing also to learn many things from that particular perspective. You were born in Florida, but grew up in Virginia. Were your parents or any family influence in or involvement in horses, or were you a pioneer oh. in those days? Uh, no, they had nothing to do with horses, and we lived many places before we got to Arlington, Virginia. I was in Arlington, Virginia during um, the 50s, I would say, in junior high school and high school, and this also was a time of segregation. And the grooms at the horse shows were mostly black people, and the segregation, of course, was fully affecting them, where they couldn't get anything to eat from the diner or stay in a motel or anything like that. And I was very aware of that, and what happened from caring about that was later on uh, developing Horses in the Hood, which is a nonprofit that I started for our poorest black community in Los Angeles. And of course, the community is not totally a black community. It's become through the years more black and Latino. It doesn't matter what the people are. That was the choice of a place to invite people to come to our horse camps from Watts. And that's been a, a real joy to do that too. The people have been great and it's been a lot of fun, and so that's another project that kind of started from during that time in Virginia during segregation. It's clear to see how that would have influenced what you do now with Horses in the Hood. I want to just take you back, uh, Kathy, to also your education and some perhaps memories of school and, and how that fitted into your passion for horses. Were you a good scholar? Did you enjoy that part of growing up? School for me then was jail. <laughs> so I really wasn't. And I would go to a barn of one of the dealers at five in the morning and ride. We were getting a racehorse ready to run, actually, and I would gallop the racehorse, come back, go to school. Then after school, back to the dealers. And when I got my pony, which was before that time, I did stuff with him before school, including riding him. And then as soon as I got free from jail, I was back with the pony. So school did not fit in. And at school also at that time was not interesting. I mean, I'm going to say that a lot of it was my fault because I was crazy for this other life, this horse activity life and, and crazy for horses. But also, this again was a very, in my opinion, uh, a very dull time to be going to school. These, well, they were totally segregated. They were kind of prim and proper in their way. And to go to school today would be so much more fun. I mean, it, would, it, it wouldn't even compare. I see what's going on. And since that time of really hating school, the last so many years, I've been going to community college some, and I just love doing that. Entirely different. So the main thing that I learned from school was they were segregated, and it was really dreary. 
So that's well, my it, school story. Well, it was ob- obviously a very difficult time in that period. And, and do you, being a horse-mad young girl, wanting a lifestyle with horses, what was your family's reaction to that, Kathy? What they wanted was for me to at least have grades that were good enough to go to college because they both were college educated and both were teachers and my father was a calculus professor and my mother taught Spanish and this and that and she was a teacher and they just wanted me to go to college so I would have choices in life and absolutely made perfect sense but I did not make grades good enough to go to college I didn't I was failing lots of classes or barely passing a few classes and it went from we hope that she can go to college to we hope she gets out of high school and I did get out of high school by the skin of my teeth and I love education and I've again loved going to community college and I've always read about things. That's what my reading is. Education to me is huge, but I think for me, going to school in the 50s in Arlington, Virginia was kind of the um, most dreary jail I could have been in. (laughs) And I'm sure I brought a lot to that party in thinking that I was in dreary jail. But I knew where I wanted to be, and that was not there. (laughs) On the back of a horse, obviously. (laughs) So which of your teachers, Kathy, have most influenced your life? Gosh, no school teachers then. I've had wonderful teachers at Community College, at Santa Monica Community College. But at that time, I would say one of the big influences was, especially once I got on the team, but even before I got on the team, knowing Billy Steinkraus, a little bit and then getting to know him very well. He was a huge influence and he knew about many things, was interested in many things and on the trips in Europe would be going to the museums and to musical things and so forth and I could tag along on some of his trips and whenever I could I just said yes, yes, yes and I learned a lot of things from Billy and also as a horseman rider I learned many things from Billy he was a a huge influence also during that time Nelson Pessoa as a horseman and rider he was a the best rider one of the best riders in the world at that time a Brazilian rider that um, everybody knew well because there was nobody better and I sure spent a lot of time around Nelson to try to learn whatever was possible from him as a rider especially. So Billy was learning not just as a rider but learning of more about everything. He, He just was so interested in that interesting and interested with that broad brush so to speak and Nelson Orneco was just the, there was no better writer. So those were two people that were huge in my life. In those days, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, you were obviously very active as a show jumper, but also mounted a successful legal challenge to become the first licensed woman jockey in this country in 1968. What were your priorities at that time as a horsewoman, Kathy? Did you want to just try everything or how did your life evolve as a horsewoman in that period? Well, first of all, I don't think of myself as a horsewoman. I think of myself as a horse person because that's limiting to be a horsewoman. And, of course, 
One of the limitations was that I couldn't get a jock's license, and they didn't license women. And I had been riding every race that I could ride. It was an unrecognized race because I could not ride where you needed a jock's license, otherwise at the track, because they wouldn't license a woman. And so I'd ridden a lot of races, both flat races at little bush tracks and timber races at spring meets. I'd ridden a lot of races, and I'd worked for a wonderful, in 58, when I got out of high school, the first thing I did was get a job with a top steeplechase trainer, Mikey Smithwick, and I'd already had a racehorse life before I went to Mikey's, but then I got a much more structured racehorse life being at Mikey's, and I still continued riding every single race I could possibly ride, being unlicensed. And then in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and this nice person, Dr. Joe Rogers, who I had been riding one of his timber horses uh, for him in races that I could ride, um, he knew I wanted to ride races at the track, and he said, you could, you'd have a real chance now to um, get a jock's license now that they've passed this 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I thought, well, great. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, it was thanks to him that I was even aware of that. And so I thought one of the girls, the racetrack girls, will challenge this of uh, this not licensing women and, uh, do what you have to do, which is going to probably mean getting an attorney and and uh, forcing this to happen because of the Civil Rights Act. And uh, but nobody did anything about it. And there was girls that were galloping and working horses on the backside in the morning at the track, and I knew them and knew they were absolutely good, and they also were. Uh, light enough to ride races, and I thought one of them, they they will do this. At the same time, I was on the team in 1964, was the first Olympic Games that I rode in in Tokyo, so I was having this other life to riding on the United States equestrian team, which was a huge dream for me to do this, and I was doing it, and I was certainly thanking my lucky stars to be doing that. But then during the off-season, I would be riding races, and races that I that were unrecognized. So I was thinking, if just one of these racetrack girls will do this, that would be great. And then I, too, could get a jocks license. Well, 64 goes by, 65 goes by, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're at 68, and we've come back from being at the Olympics in Mexico City. And I go to Saratoga. I would try to get to Saratoga for the race meet in August uh, to get a job with a trainer. And I'd be galloping and breezing and working horses in the morning and working horses in company with jockeys like Angel Cordero, et cetera. And I was also schooling hurdle horses horses in the infield for Mikey Smithwick or different steeplechase trainers. And people would say from time to time, trainers, if you could ride in the afternoon, we would put you on something, meaning if you had a jock's 
license, they would name me on something that was running in the afternoon in a race. And so and I would have, of course, loved that to death. But nobody had gotten a jock's license. And now I'm 28 years old. So when I was driving back from Saratoga, I thought the only way to do this for me to have a chance to ride is for me to go on and do it because it just isn't happening. And already I'm too old to get the apprentice allowance. At that time, they had this crazy rule that you weren't eligible for the apprentice allowance unless you were between 16 and 26. And no guy was going to have a career as a jockey without having the apprentice allowance to get bounce, which lets you ride horses at a lighter weight than what's assigned to that horse in the race. That's how you get your mounts when you're just an apprentice jockey. And to be a girl with no apprentice allowance, of course, I'm basically dead in the water. But I thought the only chance to ride races at all in some fashion on some level, which is going to be a pretty low level, basically, is that I've just got to get a jock's license. And when I got back driving from Saratoga to Maryland, I made contact with an attorney and I said, this is what I want to do. And I don't have much money. I have $1,500 in my savings account and you can have all of it start with. I know that for what attorneys earn, that'll just probably take me for a few days with you. That's the best I can do and I want to do the best I can do. And she said, this will be a landmark case and I'll do it for you for no money until we go to a court of law. So that was fantastically fortunate for me. It took one year, three hearings in front of the Maryland Racing Commission before we were able to go to a regular court of law. We had to exhaust all of the opportunities with the commission first. So we did that and we went to a court of law and it took about 30 seconds and they said, cannot deny this person a jock's license because she's a woman. And the gavel came down and I had a jock's license. So anyway, that was the beginning of that. Now, luckily for me, in a sense, after I got the jock's license, I was showing on the fall circuit with the team and a horse fell and I broke my leg. So it was going to be another six months before I could ride again. Well, when I say luckily for me, I was dreading all that would go with being one of the first, well, being the first having a license and being one of the first to start riding races. I really don't enjoy the press or any publicity. I just want to do what I'm interested in doing. And the only reason for me to get a jock's license was not to be the first girl to get a jock's license, but for me to be able to ride races on whatever level it was going to be. I really, I loved that world also. I loved riding races, which I'd ridden quite a few of these unrecognized races and loved that particular life. Also, along with loving my life with jumpers and being absolutely just couldn't believe, again, my lucky stars to be on the United States equestrian team. So anyway, other girls started off being tortured by the press. And so I was thinking, you girls go. <laughs> Thank you for taking that torture. And then Eventually, I put back together again and started riding races at the lowest half-mile tracks that ran at night, and I was thrilled. It was way fun, and then a little bit more and a little bit more, but because I'd never had the apprentice allowance, that was a huge handicap. 
the amount that I did get to ride, I was thrilled. I loved it to death. So that's yeah. that part of the story. Of course, you were immensely successful at being an Olympic show jumper and a, a jockey all at the same time. But, Kathy, what would you have regarded then to be your greatest strengths and weaknesses? All I can think of is millions of weaknesses. I mean, I don't know. All you can do is the best you can do, and I sure did do the best I could do, which wasn't always as good as I would have liked it to be. I had a lucky life, no question. Riding races, I had a lucky life to get any mounts, and the mounts I got were not very many, and they were, for the most part, on horses that were 99 to 1 and long shots otherwise. And to get any mount at all. I was thrilled out of my mind. I had nothing but a lousy race riding career, but I did have a race riding career. I did ride races and I rode races on the East Coast and then I got to go to different countries. Being the first girl licensed and being one of the first girls riding, they would kind of bring you to different countries like a freak show and they'd get a big draw of people coming to the races on those days that you were riding. So I got to to ride a lot of nice horses in South Africa and Rhodesia. I rode at all of the major tracks in those two countries. Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe, but then it was Rhodesia. And I rode in Panama, and I rode in Peru, and Chile, and Mexico City, and I even rode one race in Germany and had a winner. And so I would say, for the most part, the best horses I ever did ride were on these trips, where they would really give you decent horses to ride because they wanted it to all go well, because they were promoting their racing that day. And, and promoting their racing anyway. And so that was a very fortunate thing to get to do just because of being an early girl rider, so to speak. But otherwise, I was riding it in Maryland and Pennsylvania and so forth, Delaware, mostly at the night tracks, but not totally. I had a couple of winters at Atlantic City and in Mammoth and Delaware Park, Laurel and things like that. But I was mostly riding at Pocono Downs and Charlestown and Shenandoah Downs, the kind of half-mile tracks. I was glad to be riding anything, and a lot of the time I was covered in mud. When I'd pull up, I had just had a, one more mud bath out there, being sort of in the back of the field, but I was thrilled. The whole process of riding a race, I never got over the thrill of being in the jock's room, checking with the clerk of scales to go out to ride, you know, tightening the undergirth and the overgirth, being thrown up, warming up, going to the gate. I always loved the starting gate and coming out of the gate and then usually sort of going backwards fairly soon because my horse would be not that good, but that's okay. And then pulling up after you cross under the wire and galloping back and jumping off and loosening the overgirth and the undergirth and pulling the saddle off and stepping on the scales and going back in the jock's room. That was so much fun, I can't even tell you, and never got over that fun. And when I actually would get on something that would be running pretty decently or even the odd winner, it was like, holy cow, was that fun or what? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the whole thing was fun. And being on the United States equestrian team, my God, just a different world, totally, no comparison. I mean, well, it, the only common denominator is they were horses, but other than that, it's like swimming or diving. You know, you're doing it in water, but it's an entirely different world and an entirely different different technique 
in every way, and that was very fun. Well, we should I mean, uh, remind everyone that the amazing accomplishments as a, a show jumping rider, at only 21 years of age, you set the U.S. ladies' high jump record, and you were the first woman ever selected to represent the U.S. equestrian team in Olympic competition. An incredible diversity of accomplishments with your show jumping career and your race riding career. I did what they called set a women's high jump record, which was sort of a press contrived thing. So that was contrived. And then I wasn't the first one to ride in the Olympics. Both Mary Mars and Mary Mars Chapeau, she and I rode in Tokyo. So we were the first two at that point to ride well for the United States team. Pat Smythe had ridden for the British team in 58. Of all those accomplishments, Kathy, which of those are, are you most proud of? Well, I just l- love the, the life and the process of being on the team and riding jumpers and the life and the process of being at the track and riding races as badly as I was just covered in mud at the racetrack for the most of the time. It's the process and, and the life and the people and learning. The learning part was just always so interesting. And so I don't think about it so much as accomplishments as really the life, the doing of it all. And I was just crazy for the doing of it at the track and the doing of it with the team and with jumpers anyway. I also had a big life with jumpers, not just horses on the team, but horses that I was riding for other people, for dealers, etc. And it was way fun. What, what do you most value in life? I think one of the biggest thrills is learning things, and that's huge. And when I moved to Los Angeles, which was 1979, I found that there was races that normal people could run in. I always loved track and field. At the Olympic Games, I would be glued to all of that. But I never knew there was anything that people less than nationally or internationally ranked runners or any of the field events, too, could participate in. Well, then that changed during the 70s. They started having these races of all kinds for just anybody. All you had to do was pay your entry fee and line up. And when I discovered that, when I moved to Los Angeles, I started running every single race I could find, and that was way fun. And then, including, I was started running marathons pretty quickly, and and then found out there was another world called ultramarathons and started running ultramarathons. And a lot of these marathons, but especially the ultras, they're held in some of the most beautiful places in the world. They're, an ultra is anything longer than a marathon, and there's no maximum distance. And the minimum is they've got to be at least an inch more than 26.2 miles, which is the distance of a marathon. Anything over, they're an ultra. And so I got into that world and traveled a lot doing this. I had a long-distance running boyfriend, and we went many, many places in the world running these things, and it was so much fun. And he loved learning also, and we would build a trip around an ultra somewhere and see everything and try to learn everything we could about that area and and whether it was South Africa or we went did trips to China, Great Wall of China Marathon and 
a marathon through Angkor Wat in Cambodia, etc., etc. And that was a great, and it still continues to be a, a great adventure and a great learning experience. I read somewhere that you won your division in almost every 10,000 meter road race in the LA area. I did that for about <laughs> two years and then somebody came along that was good. And, and, you, so and, you, and you also <laughs> won your division of the Colorado Pikes Peak Ultra Marathon three times. That's correct. That's uh, correct. So, so there's more winning but, there than. <laughs> but there's more losing than, than winning. I was a very, I am a very prolific runner. I run a lot of these creatures. So lots of losing, but it's all way fun. Most of our running is done in the mountains, our training. In fact, uh, Tuesday morning, I do about 14 miles in the Santa Monica Mountains always. And that kind of running is really fun because in doing that, I've sort of made a project out of learning the native plants and the native wildflowers and the native birds and I'm pretty good with the plants and the wildflowers and a little bit less good with the birds but that's very fun to be looking and trying to identify and remember what you're not identifying and look it up and it gives you definitely stuff to do while you're running miles and miles and miles and so today and, uh, you would have run how many miles, Kathy? Today, actually, I cut it a little bit shorter because I needed to make sure to get back in time to talk to you. I ended up running 12 in the mountains. So uh, would you remind our listeners how old you are? I'm 70 now, probably about to be 100, but <laughs> today it's only 70. <laughs> it just keeps... Each time I check, it's like, holy cow, how does... How did that happen? Anyway. <laughs> well, apart from being obviously a very, very accomplished horsewoman and runner, you're also an experienced scuba diver too. And when you mentioned all those wonderful exotic places around the world that you've been running and riding, you've also taken in a few fabulous sites in your scuba diving activities too. That's true. That is another great way to see the world. And I would say I have dove probably most of the best diving sites in the world a little bit. But there's one that I have never dove, and that's Palau, and I would love to dive Palau. And uh, that's in Micronesia. So, yeah, that's another way to explore. You clearly are a woman that finds no barriers in life to adventure. You're also a pilot, with the commercial multi-engine instrument and seaplane ratings and aerobatic skills. How do you find time for all these things, Kathy? And where did the flying career become inspired? Well, how did that start? Well, it certainly was always something of interest, but I knew that there was no way that I could get a pilot's license because that's expensive. The one thing that I've never had much of other than just to pay my expenses in life is any extra money to do much of anything. And just to say this, luckily in my life, whatever I do with horses, it's been kind of a barter system where I've gotten to do many other things because of riding horses for people. And when at some point of, I want to say, well, how old would I have been? 18, 19, 20, something like that, 21, 22, somewhere there was a person that became very quickly kind of one of the best writers in this country from being just a blacksmith, and his name was Benny O'Mara. And Benny went from being a blacksmith to two years later being the most successful horse dealer, and there was no better writer in the country at that 
point than Benny. And also, I started riding horses for Benny. And then Benny decided, well, we were talking about easier ways for him to get around to do his buying of horses because a horse dealer's got to stay on the move kind of like a shark, to uh, keep seeing horses, buying horses, to have stock to sell. So I was saying if you learned to fly, you could get to your radius of action would be greatly increased to easily get to the Midwest or here or there and for your buying trips. So then he decided to take flying lessons and he actually got quite interested in it. And I was showing a lot of his horses and, and then he said, you can also take flying lessons. And so I started taking flying lessons and got a private pilot's license and then got an instrument, and then got a commercial, but it was started with Benny, and then I was riding horses for a wonderful family called the Butlers. And Mr. Butler, at one point in his life, had had a pilot's license. And so we made a barter system again, arrangement where I could continue my flying and, and go on and get other ratings through um, just, he, he would sponsor that part of my existence if, since I was showing, well, doing everything with his horses. I ran their life and showed them and so forth and I got to fly all that I wanted and I got, kept just getting rating all every rating that I could find which was every rating with sailplanes and commercial sailplanes and seaplanes and and um, so then the next thing that happened I was at the Olympics in Munich and uh, the person that was the president of the Washington Horse Show at that point wanted me to do some special classes at Washington that um, fall, and he was at Munich, and he would be around the stables in the morning, and and he also was the president of a jet charter company called Executive Jet Aviation. So I was saying I didn't think I was going to Washington uh, that fall because uh, I had enough I didn't have to do that show, and I was going to have to do a whole bunch more right or some more right after that. And and uh, he said, well, we ended up making a a barter system deal. The barter system deal was, if I did Washington his horse show and his special classes, then he would uh, allow me to then go to Executive Jets base in Columbus, Ohio, after the horse show season finished and I could get a type rating in a Learjet. Well, that's huge. And I said, yes, I would jump at that. And uh, we did it. I did Washington and I, after I was finished with the fall horse show circuit, I checked with him and said, you still mean that? That I could be, because if you don't, I understand. It's just such a huge, big nut to um, get type rated in a jet. And he said, "No, I mean it." And I went out and I got type rated in the Lear, and then I came back, uh, and then I got a phone call from his vice president uh, in charge of operations, who was Paul Tibbet. Paul Tibbet was actually the pilot that flew the. Anola Gay that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, and he was again work. He was very important at this point in time at a, at Executive Jet, and 
he said that they were offering me a job to fly for executive jet. Now, was that because I was a better pilot than other people that had been putting in their application? No. But what they needed was, uh, they needed a female pilot, uh, just because this was a time that equal opportunity was very important. And uh, this was in 1973. And uh, so I represented that. And uh, so by that point in time, I knew what a line pilot's life was. And I knew I'd been very curious about that and had learned about it when I was in Columbus, Ohio, getting type rated. And I'd learned that um, I probably wouldn't like that as my life but it sure would be it sure was interesting to at least find out about it so i told him that that i didn't think that this is something i would like to do as my life's work and then he said well what if you came and flew for us for the summer and then we could revisit this after that. And I said, well, I would love to do that, uh, knowing that they knew full well that probably at the end of the summer I would be going back to my other life. So we did it, and it was great. And I had such an interesting summer, and knowing full well that I wasn't stuck being a line pilot, and I hadn't, again, misrepresented that I was going to continue to be a line pilot. And under those circumstances, it was very fun to do it. And the Learjet, my God, you can't get a more exciting airplane to fly. And the thing was a jet fighter for the Swiss Air Force, and it just was converted to be a businessman's jet. So you were essentially flying a fighter, which was way fun and a very overpowered creature. <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot of horsepower there, Kathy. Being such a, an achiever and an adventurer, does anything intimidate you at all? First, I think, holy cow, uh, anybody that does this or that, they've got to be extremely everything. And then I sort of look at people that do these things, whether it's line pilots or whatever, and I notice that they're just people. And they're really not extremely anything except they have learned step by step how to do that. And so I can keep taking all of those steps too and see what comes from it. I never feel like, oh, I know that I'm going to be good at this or whatever. I'm just going to keep taking the steps and doing the best I can with it and just see what comes to pass with no expectation of anything but the interest of doing it, the fun of trying to do it. And if I can do it on some level, great. If it was going to be that I couldn't do it on some level, still very interesting to just learn a, a little bit about it or learn a lot about it. Like when I first came to Los Angeles, I was going to acting school. Now, I knew full well that I was not going to be able to be an actor, and I knew full well that I cannot act. But I thought, what fun to go to class, because then that's all unfolding, How the basics of how do you do this thing. And that's what was happening in class, all of the things that you 
do in acting school, and which is everything. It's learning how to do a cold reading as if you were auditioning for something. They handed you a script and you have a couple minutes to look it over and then with your eyes sort of down on the script, but then up again relating to who's ever had given you the cold reading to really try to bring that character to life and do it, or to do a scene, or you had to learn movement classes to be able to do some sort of dance, even in the most rudimentary way, or voice lessons. To be an actor, you have to be able to do all of this stuff to move and to do many things that have a lot of business where you're doing, picking up this and carrying it over there and as you're doing your scene. And so all these things are just done with a bunch of people for the most part. I couldn't do them either, except they had some ability and they were young and beautiful. We had those differences. But other than that, it's all of these basic things that we were doing in, in class. And that was way fun. While you were in L.A., you clearly took advantage of uh, getting immersed in Hollywood and uh, got into the movie business as well, it involved with uh, different productions. And so many of these skills that you've combined in, in life, uh, I wonder, it sounds, Kathy, like you were a very optimistic person. Um, but how do you come adversity? Well, first of all, let me back up. I would be a production assistant on some bad movie. You rode in a Disney movie, I read. Well, that was just long shots, and it was nothing that had any acting whatsoever. I knew how to ride, so no acting going on. You were involved with production companies in the movie business. It was a stand-in for a person that I was too short and in the wrong color. She was a blonde. <laughs> Her eyes were higher, and they had to light the scene, and, and they need somebody that has the same height of eyes and blonde hair. And But anyway, I did that. So you garnered a variety of skills, as you say, including in in the movie business as well. But to back to my question, being, it seems to me that you're an optimist, Kathy. So how do you overcome adversity? I don't think of adversity as adversity. I just think of it as whatever is happening. That's what it is. Otherwise, they will not license females to be jockeys. So when the time came where there was a chance, thanks to the Civil Rights Act, then find out, what do I do? Well, what I needed to do was get a lawyer. And then I had to do what the lawyer had to say. I mean, this took a year. You know, you don't even know if you're going to overcome it. That's what you do to do the best you can with the situation. And it's day by day, step by step, like with anything, and as days go on and weeks and months and years and whatever, you get better at whatever it is and your step-by-steps become on a higher level and a higher level and they get to be whatever they are. Really, that's it. Kathy, and, I have to say you've been a great role model and I'm going to ask you what I ask all my guests on this series. That what books are you reading right now? What inspires you? I should be reading more and better. I'm reading a a book by Warren Buffett's son, and Warren Buffett is such an interesting person to me 
because uh, what he did, well, he's just the best and the brightest, so to speak, in doing what he did, which was earn a tremendous amount of money, which is not an interest of mine, earning the tremendous amount of money, but it's the way he's conducted his life. He hasn't changed it at all. He lives in the same house, drives the same car. His father gave each child $100,000, and that was it. And Warren Buffett has not given them anything. They haven't have had the chance to make a life for themselves and really have a life, and they've done that. And so to just drown them in money, so to speak, that kind of takes away the chance of creating your own life with a lot of people. I wouldn't say, I don't know that it has with all by any means, but the Buffett children, they have created their own lives, and the son is saying that he wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And when I see Warren Buffett interviewed by Charlie Rose on television, it's so very interesting what he's doing with all of his money, which is as much as any one human on earth has, basically. It's in the foundation to education and medical advancement, etc., for the world. That's his philosophy of what he wants to do and thinks that that's a great way to use this and these billions of dollars, and his son agrees totally. Well, having achieved so much, Kathy, and, but still obviously an adventurer at heart, and I don't think there's any slowing you down, but what have you got left on your to-do list? What ambitions do you have now of all the things you've done? Do you have new ambitions? Well, just to go to more places and do things. There's Istanbul Marathon that I sure would like to do, and I think myself and maybe a few friends might go next year to that. I've never been to Istanbul or Constantinople, as it used to be, and there's all of this wonderful architecture and art. And then there's also in the marathon you run from either Europe to Asia or Asia to Europe. I'm not sure which side is which. But anyway, the Bosporus River separates Europe from Asia, and there's a bridge that goes over it. And in the marathon, you go over the bridge from one to the other and then eventually come back over a bridge again to the other side. And all of that just sounds very interesting and to learn a little bit about that area and to see those to see that wonderful architecture and to see the art that's a goal to go and to do that and until I fall over dead there'll just be more of those kind of I'm things. sure I'm sure there will I'm sure that will, you will always find inspiration just as you have inspired so many people Kathy and what a wonderful role model uh, you, you are and I'm going to ask you now as we come to the end of this and uh, it's been an absolute joy I have to say Kathy to hear you recall your stories but at the end of the day what really matters most to you? Going through the day you're trying not to goof up at least not goof up too badly with anything you're doing the best you can and I try to have my existence so that there's plenty of time to be doing things and learning things otherwise I'm not interested in earning money other than just to support myself so I'm interested in supporting myself but then to keep a a life that has plenty of flexibility in it and time to keep learning things and doing things. Well, we want to wish you continued good health and activity for a very long life, Kathy. It's been a joy to talk to you and want to thank you so much for being our guest. Well, Chris, you've been very nice and very nice. You've been a good interviewer and I appreciate that. And you ask very nice questions and and I like that very much. So thank you. 
I will be back in two weeks' time with another episode of Equestrian Legends, so until then, thank you all for listening.